This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Artica. Artica is a publisher, but it's actually much more. A place where books become art. A publisher that specialises in creating artisanal books together with the very best, most internationally renowned artists, managing to elevate different artistic disciplines to another level. If you'd like more information about Artica or its collection of artworks, go to articabooks.com to discover books transformed into authentic works of art. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences in art, books, music and other media and the cultural events that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Alberta Whittle. Over the last few years, Alberta's emerged as one of the most striking new voices in contemporary British art, with her wide-ranging practice, but especially with her film installations, focusing on battling anti-blackness. Alberta was born in 1980 in Bridgetown on the Caribbean island of Barbados, but moved to Birmingham in the UK as a teenager before studying at the Glasgow School of Art. She still lives in Glasgow today, but spends some of her time in Barbados. And this relationship between her native Caribbean and her Scottish hometown have informed her work from the start, both in terms of exploring her own identity and its unavoidable connection with the histories of colonialism, slavery and systemic racism. Her film Business as Usual, Hostile Environment, is emblematic of the work that's gained Alberta such recent prominence. It was first intended to be a rumination on the Windrush scandal, where hundreds of Caribbean Commonwealth citizens, who were automatically British subjects and free to permanently live and work in the UK, were wrongly detained, deported and denied legal rights. Many of them died as a result of the British government's creation of this so-called hostile environment. But in 2020, Alberta's piece expanded to reflect the COVID-19 pandemic, where black people and other people of colour were on the front line of the response to the virus, often in terrible conditions. The work is of course angry, but it's also deeply empathetic. Alberta's written that her creative practice is motivated by the desire to manifest self-compassion and collective care. So in the film we see Alberta's affectionate footage of the Joyous Choir, part of the Mary Hill Integration Network, a community in Glasgow which brings together asylum seekers, refugees and local inhabitants to create positive social change. This is followed by archival footage which veers from National Front graffiti and right-wing demonstrations to news reports about the vital contribution made by immigrants to healthcare and historic imagery of Caribbean migrants on boats and working in Britain's National Health Service and images of the ocean, one assumes the Caribbean. There are also extraordinary original film sequences. A dancer performs a tap dance to modern jazz music created by Tumi Mohorossi's project ELO. There's a conversation in which women discuss the racism they experience in everyday life. Meanwhile, in Reset, a film commissioned when Alberta won the Freeze Artist Award in 2020, and which is now part of an exhibition at Jupiter Artland near Edinburgh in the UK, Alberta similarly creates a collage of disparate moving images, again from found archival material, including the Black Lives Matter protests last year, but also footage shot on an iPhone and extraordinary performances filmed in beautiful high definition. The performances are made with a range of regular collaborators, who Alberta calls accomplices and a prominent credited in her work and it's this collaborative aspect with which I began our conversation. Why is collaboration such a crucial element of her practice? No, I think actually for quite a long time in the early part of my career I actually didn't collaborate that often Um, And it was when I started moving around the world a bit more and actually ended up spending time in South Africa that I really saw more clearly through working with other artists there how collaboration could become this very important way to move through the world critically but also ethically. And I started to work closely with two artists there, one of whom I'm still working very close with Frida Nazir on a performance practice, which we've been doing since 2014. And, you know, those early moments of working together, especially with Farida, I realized that there needed to be a shift in my practice, actually, to really think about what stories we are entirely responsible for, but actually how collaboration can keep you humble, but also more flexible. Because when I work with others, so for instance, in the work for Jupiter Artland um, Reset, working with other people meant that 
there's no avoiding checking in with people and there's no avoiding checking in with yourself as well and because so much of my work is really about trying to avoid re-traumatizing audiences whilst often dealing with quite difficult subject matter it means that I am kept in check and I try and be as gentle and critical with the audience as I can be but also collaboration I think you know it can really encourage you know a multiplicity of understandings of the world you know it can be so easy you know especially under lockdown when I was working from my bedroom and I wasn't really working in a studio to become quite insular, you know, in one's approach. And I think, you know, these check-in moments with other collaborators, accomplices, as I like to think of them, other artists, it means that you're aware so much more about what's really going on and what's critical, whilst also being made to, you know, really reflect on what a gift those conversations can be. And so when I speak to my accomplices from Amma Josephine Budge, who's, you know, I've been working with Amma for a long time as well, or Mele Brooms or Sakai Machache or Christian or Charles or any of the people that are, you know, on that quite lengthy list. It means that, you know, I, I really appreciate how much they also generate in terms of being open with their research. And, you know, it keeps you very much on your toes. I think you know, besides Farida, my grandmother and my dad were maybe the other people I first started collaborating with before I had this much longer list of accomplices. And, you know, because it was because their stories were also so important, I realized that you need to be more respectful and kind of careful with these ideas. I, you talked about re-traumatizing there and, it, and I noticed in your sort of statement around your work you talk about self-compassion and collective care and I think this is a really fascinating idea because it, it is manifested in the work isn't it and it's very sort of outwardly manifested in the work can you say something about that? Of course you know for me I guess in some ways with the you know the rise and availability of like individuals being able to capture images capture footage of you know different interactions or their own life we're now, I think, getting quite numb to certain images. I think there's a sense of that, but also there's now quite a casual cavalierness to trauma or traumatic images and how those are posted and reshared and framed as well. And the opportunity to check in with others about things that I might not find traumatizing is really important because I can't say that, you know, I'm going to be affected in the same way as someone else. And when I start thinking about the installations or thinking about, you know, last year more of my films were actually shown online and I wasn't able to have these installations, I started really thinking about how audiences would be looking at the work on their own. And that was very concerning for me because when you're not in a gallery setting, it can be so isolating. I think, to try and unpick the politics that are going on behind my work in particular in terms of how it deals with social injustice, like the hostile environment or thinks about gender or race. And I found myself, you know, more and more thinking about instructions I could give to the audience as time went on. And for the installation at Jupiter, I also was able to use text. There's quite a lot of text in the film, which... Amma Josephine Budge, you know, she was commissioned to write, but also I found myself creating my own text, which then I, I created on vinyls to also speak to the audience inside when they were with the work, but also outside so that it would almost prepare them for when they were coming in to think about the work. And it's very important for me that the audience in some ways feels cared for, because I think that if they're coming in, it has to be an invitation for a conversation. And whilst the work can be very difficult, there needs to be certain cues, but also certain points of rest in terms of how they can engage with the work. And even for myself, I found myself quite exhausted, especially, I think, you know, in the kind of like middle part of last year and feeling like I was heading towards numbness because of everything that had occurred. And just that sense of oversaturation of really very difficult, different things that I was witnessing in the news or firsthand or in conversation with friends. And thinking about self-compassion as a way to continue practicing as an artist, but also something which I wanted to encourage my audience to think about started becoming you know, a really central tenant in my work. Because I think making art is deeply hopeful and to be able to stay hopeful, you need to actually really look after your mental health and your physical health. 
one of the things that made me very conscious of that was the way that you sort of glimpses of imagery. So, for instance, some of the Black Lives Matter protests, there'd be a slither of the screen where some of that footage would be appearing. And it seemed to me that that was a very powerful visual illustration of what you're talking about. Mm. And so tell me about that sort of the way that you use different formats to introduce the kind of imagery that you're talking about. Well, you know, I really wanted those strong verticals. You know, I, I really love collage. I make collage a lot. and making those verticals became another way for me to collage images together, but also to allow for you to focus on the juxtaposition of these images together, because whilst there are these central, you know, images, these very almost kind of majestic images of the Stancer melee brooms on the grounds at Jupiter Artland um, in that particular part of the film, there's no escape. There's really no escape from actually looking at the real catastrophe of anti-blackness, you know, and, and racism that is still occurring. And Mele, while she symbolizes this almost, she has a very godlike presence. She has this really very godlike, very spiritual presence, almost kind of like creating, you know, this bridge between the heavens and the earth. But I wanted it so that you can't escape, you can't quite forget you know, that, that really these things are still going on. And I think there is this tendency towards amnesia to forget about Black Lives Matter or to isolate it entirely as being something that only goes on in the US and that these are things which in the UK we don't need to worry about. And that was really very, became more and more apparent to me as the year went on that there's a way in which we can kind of like change direction, change our thoughts, especially like if I think about Windrush and how little of that has been in the press recently. And that's always a kind of source of curiosity for me, actually, when I start thinking about my work, about that ability to deflect or to ignore or to forget. And as someone who actually has quite a terrible short term memory, I've got a really bad memory. I think about memory a lot, you know, and that kind of ability to shift focus or forget, because I do think it's really tinged to you know, our different forms of privilege that we, we all have. And, you know, forgetting is a huge privilege. Absolutely. I wondered if what you're talking about is illustrated also by the fact that you include yourself in your work so much, that your, your very presence in the work is really significant. You appear at the start of films, you appear throughout them. Like, so, for instance, in your collages, you're very present. And, and can you tell me about, I suppose, the way that you use yourself, your body, your, your face as a presence in the work? Using my body became, I think, like many of us artists, so often you couldn't always, you know, drag your friends into your project. So you just started using yourself um, as being a kind of stand in. But bringing myself into the work also became a way for me to put myself on the line, because I do think, you know, when I work with my accomplices, you know, they feed into the work so much. And they really do put themselves in the line. You know, it can be a very exhausting process, you know, making these pieces of work, whether it's the score by Eve or, or you know, the, the different kind of sonic experiments with Christian Noel Charles. And I think it's only fair that I put myself on the line in the same way. But I think that, you know, increasingly my work has become more personal because I am directly speaking of my experiences, you know, and in some earlier films, I spoke very much about, you know, in this one film, Lessons in Vocal Intonation, about my tongue being a selector. And that's very much about, you know, this kind of, this strange feeling of recognizing that one has this anglicized tongue, even if one is not entirely accepted in the anglophone British world. But putting myself in my work, especially in my collages, is a way for me to perform. And I think perform, you know, and, and manifest all of the different ideas that I'm, I'm, you know, working on, you know, very directly from the source in a way. But I think it's appropriate to put myself on the line, you know, it shouldn't just be everyone else. Uh, let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests now. So who was the first artist whose work you loved? Ooh, Frida Kahlo. Love Frida Kahlo. Um, my parents had 
they had, I think, a postcard book or an art book of hers. And my mum used to do my hair like hers and I have very thick eyebrows. So I always felt this affinity. And I just loved her work so much. And I think, you know, I had this childhood illness, fibromyalgia, which I still have. But I spent so much time in bed and looking at how Frida Kahlo, you know, still managed to be productive and still managed to make and, and think creatively. That blew my mind that if she's doing this, you know, I can still do this. And to be honest with you, I spent most of those, you know, early teenage years in bed doing exactly that, drawing, doing self-portraits. I mean, actually, maybe that's why I started doing self-portraits and where things actually came out, because I was my muse and I was my critic. And I was also the kind of like main source when I was home, you know, not feeling very well, not being well. So Frida Kahlo, huge inspiration for me. And I just think what an incredible powerhouse. And also someone who's, you know, from Carib. She's also, you know, from my part of the world. So I really, really respond to her work so much. And, you know, I'll never forget that amazing show that was hers at the Tate, you know, like a few, I'm not even sure, gosh, probably over a decade ago, but just huge inspiration. She's one of those artists who, one of those rare artists who, when you encounter their work, you never forget it. So you, there are plenty of artists who are great artists who you might encounter a work and it will, you, you, you might admire it. But with Frida, it's, it's, it's almost like it's somehow etched into your brain from that first moment you encounter it, isn't it? Definitely. But I also think, you know, she was just so bold and like also so vulnerable. And that incredible vulnerability, I just find that so inspiring. Indeed. Uh, which historical artist do you turn to the most today? I'm Louise Bourgeois. I remember seeing her show at the Fruit Market Gallery in Edinburgh, I think in the early 2000s. And my lecturer at the time was a huge fan and took us all of us very young, kind of like BA students there. And I mean, I still think of her when I make. I really enjoy making things with my hands. So much enjoy making things with my hands. And I love the the sensitivity, but also just this incredible rigor to her work, just really, really incredible rigor to her work where she's just, she was so powerful and unafraid of just tackling all these really quite difficult subject matters. And I'm just a massive fan of Louise Bourgeois, which is great. And talking about that sort of self-compassion and, and, and collective care, I mean, one of the things that strikes me about, about you talked about Frida Kahlo's vulnerability, Louise Bourgeois is, is deeply vulnerable, but also fully open to exposing her, her psychoanalytic journey, for instance. And that mm. seemed to me an extraordinarily bold process for an artist to, to experience. It's not just psychoanalysis as a kind of abstract idea, a, a modish idea. It's entering into it fully and then exposing that to everyone. <laughs> yeah, I think there's just, you know, they were both such leaders in, I think, that really ferocious vulnerability. And, and also, you know, something which I've been thinking about, you know, to, around the idea of being radically soft and choosing. And I, I wrote this text, which is very much kind of related to you know, my experiences moving around the world, you know, as a black woman, woman from the Caribbean, and this idea that almost to stay alive, one has to become a callous. That actually really frightens me because to become a callous, that means that you will no longer be able to feel. You're literally kind of toughening your skin. You've become this callous and you, you can no longer feel in the same way, but also you become quite impenetrable there's now this complete kind of like, I don't know, kind of like toughness of skin around you. And again, I think that relates to this idea of like, you know, avoiding numbness where possible. And, you know, for me, when I think about, you know, being vulnerable in my work, it is about that radical softness. It's about trying to avoid becoming this callous that I could see very easily happening. You know, I think so many of us are very vulnerable, but the world is a very difficult, difficult place. You know, this is probably an underlying reason why I love their work so much. And I suppose going back to, to collaborators, that's, again, they, you, as you say, they sort of keep you sharp. They, they keep you wary, right? And I guess also they keep you soft in that sense that you're talking about. Totally, because they're such an incredible, caring group of people. I mean... When I first started, you know, and I got the commission from Freeze and Former to make the film, it came at this point where I was longing for them. I mean, longing for them so much. And I was really thinking about family and I was thinking about chosen family as well as blood family. 
and I was with my blood family in Barbados, who I adore, but I was also missing these people that I'd made another form of family with in the UK and South Africa, with friends in the US. And, you know, the care with which they have treated me and, you know, my practice and how supportive they are, you know, that, that really does keep me kind of grounded, but also persisting. Uh, let's talk about contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? I'm a really big fan of Denzel Forrester. I love Felida Barlow. Um, I was really overwhelmed with her installation at the Tate. And I love Veronica Ryan's work. I'm very lucky that some of her work is going to be in a show I'm in at Glasgow Women's Library on the opening on the 14th um, of this month. Love Sandra Perry, Chris O'Feely. Mm. I remember Chris O'Feely's work striking me you know, just so strongly and really resonating with me when I was doing my, I think I was still at school when he was first in scene and going to see the, I'm not sure if it was Sensation, but I remember seeing his work really when he was just everywhere. And I found it, you know, especially because like of how he spoke about Stephen Lawrence's murder Mm. and that utter grief, but he did it with so much sensuality and care. I remember those works really sitting with me because when I first arrived, in the UK, Stephen Lawrence had been murdered earlier that year. Oh, God. And I remember being terrified, like absolutely terrified that that could happen, you know, coming from Barbados where, you know, nothing like that really happened then and certainly not to someone young for no reason. And I, I think, you know, just that incredible grief, but also generosity and in his work, I, I, it really, really sat with me so strongly. That's right. I mean, the the picture no woman no cry is is in a way one of the great works of the last century and it made sort of right at the end 1998 or 99 and it's it pictures Doreen Lawrence Stephen's mother right and and Stephen appears in her tears it's such an extraordinary moving work so strong I, I wonder as an artist from the Caribbean how do you respond to Chris's work made there because it's such a fascinating shift in his work so he arrives in Trinidad and then makes work he's spoken about the very very particular light of the of that area I wondered how you respond to that I mean I was really lucky that I got to meet Chris quite a few years ago now when I was in Trinidad for Carafesta which is a Caribbean festival of the arts and you know I'm a huge fan of his work and, and the more recent work as well that he's done I love the piece he did in collaboration with the Dovecot in Edinburgh, then toured to the different national galleries. I just found that incredible. And I do think more recently in my work, I've really found myself doing paintings, which I'm very shy about and rarely show, but I did show some at Jupiter, some wall paintings. And there is something very special about the light in the Caribbean and Trinidad is an incredible place, but also I think there's something very special about the Caribbean culture and just how I think it's been overlooked for so many years in terms of like the different kind of critical or kind of like cultural research that goes on there. And I think Chris really taps into that when he's over there. There's something very special about also no longer being in the minority and that is very, very freeing. You know, it just can't be ignored that it's, it's ridiculously freeing when most people look like you. Mm. But, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of his recent work as well. You spoke about Denzel Forrester. And one of the things that I think is wonderful about Denzel's work is are those pictures of club scenes, which are because on the one hand, they're just moments of joy. But of course, it's they're moments of solidarity, aren't they? They're, they're profoundly mm-hmm. moments where it's a community gathering. And yes, it's celebratory, but it's but it's much more than that. It's it's so profound. No, completely. I mean, I have a friend who's a really incredible DJ in in Cape Town, and he always says for him, the dance floor is the most democratic space he knows. And one of the things I love about Denzel's work is this representation of, of joy, but also endurance, because there's something to me in his paintings where you really pick up that kind of like energy of that deep bass of growing up, probably going to carnivals, of those house parties, and of making a space for yourself and for your community. And I mean, I I heard him give a really interesting interview about, you know, the representations he was doing of, you know, a young man who'd been murdered by the police, a young black man, um, you know, when he was coming up. And, And these things do sit with you, I think. They really are haunting. But he has this just such a clear and unusual 
I think, vision and palette in what he chooses to depict and how he depicts it. Oh, I'm, I just love his work. I, I think it's so interesting to me how also as an artist, he's just been consistently making. Yeah. Just consistently making and with no interference, which I think is really, really interesting. But he's been, I don't know, just so deeply engaged in his practice for so long and it's just really exciting to see them out there and also the scale of the work is incredible because it becomes almost like a shrine as well I mean I find myself when I'm on the dance floor feeling almost lost in space depending on what I'm dancing to you know you can get so lost and there can be this really great spiritual energy that comes across when just the crowd is moving and the bass is hitting just right and that is a feeling which I really recognize in his work as well that's fascinating. Do you have works of art around you in the studio as you're formulating your own work? So do you have things pinned to the studio wall? I do. I do. I have a lot of pictures of my family. I have a postcard by Hilma Klimt, which I've kind of moved from the studio to the bedroom, back to the bedroom, back to the studio. And I remember I picked it up when I went to see her show at the Serpentine. And I mean, I just cried. I just cried when I saw those paintings. I was completely captivated with, I don't know, just that kind of gorgeous sensuality. There was so much pleasure in those paintings and the kind of like texture of them, but also the kind of studies she was doing in these spiritual practices. You know, they're just gorgeous. It's one of those exhibitions, and I know that this is true of so many people in New York, you saw it at the Guggenheim, that, that, that it was one of those exhibitions that completely throws you off your path you know I, I had barely heard of Hilda Klimt and suddenly there was an exhibition of her work and it was it was yeah a, a tremendously different experience and of course one of the th processes we're going through at the moment is rediscovering artists finding a new canon after such an established canon for so long and it's a, and actually one of the things it seems like an academic process but it's actually I'm sure as an artist it's a really exciting process to at last see these figures uncovered. I mean, it was incredible for me because I'd never heard of her before that Serpentine show. And just the, the vastness of her work. I mean, they're so big. They're just so big. And also just how much it was there. And it just felt like, wow, this is a treasure trove that's just suddenly been unpicked, you know, uncovered. It's really, really gorgeous. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Artica, a publisher that creates art with each of its publications. Artica specialises in developing unique artist books that propose new readings of the bodies of work of major artists across history. They create books that seem to be chiselled into sculptures, written on canvases or etched with the artist's intimate thoughts. Books that are works of art in themselves, thanks to the meticulous artisanal production process with which they've been created and the innovative concept behind each one. From Vincent van Gogh to Pablo Picasso to Jaime Plenza, Salvador Dali, Anthony Gaudí, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec and most recently Frida Kahlo. With this latest release containing Kahlo's most intimate and personal drawings, Artica offers a never-before-seen glimpse into the private world of the iconic Mexican painter. Check out this and other limited edition works by Artica at articabooks.com and discover books transformed into art. Let's talk about uh, museums now. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Tramway in Glasgow. I find myself always there. And I think, you know, the pro it's also fortunately quite near my house. So I really enjoy, enjoy walking there. And, you know, I remember when I first moved to Scotland, even then living in Edinburgh, I would still always travel there. I mean, the fruit market in... Edinburgh is another one I always go to. DCA in Dundee. The programming is really, really incredible. Mm. Tramway is obviously has has forever been sort of a central part of this extraordinary art scene in Glasgow. Can you tell me what being in that scene means to you? Because of course you've also been a member of the group that runs Transmission, which is such a seminal space. Um, you know, it's it's obviously such an extraordinary atmosphere that in in Glasgow, but also it nurtures artists. Can you say something about that? You know, I think my time at Transmission also was so important for me in terms of like really thinking about a critical collaborative practice, you know, that's built around mutual care. 
is that it, it's a space that, you know, for so long has really tried so hard to support artists with their practice through very practical ways, such as like sharing equipment and tech or even chairs, beanbags, or even allowing people to come in and do their editing on the computers. There's a sense of open-handedness and generosity, but also, you know, because of, I think, also the scale of the city where it's big enough, but also small enough, you tend to get to know people very quickly and people are incredibly excited to collaborate and really always so generous in terms of sharing any resources. You know, my friend Louise Briggs, who used to work at Studio Pavilion, I was really lucky enough to run into her when she was setting up, you know, some studios and she gave me a studio, you know, when I was preparing for my DCA show. And that just came at the right time. But also, I think, you know, there's a real investment in the city in, I don't know, just kind of like making sure everyone's okay. And so people do tend to check in quite a lot. Yeah. You know, institutionally as well. I think people um, who now work for institutions have often been artists or have studied in the city. So tend to really know the artists who are still practicing. And where possible, I think they are very generous. Yeah. You know, again, with resources. And one of the things that you showed a, a really memorable work by the canal in, in Glasgow as part of GI this year. And one of the things about it was that you worked directly with a community there, Mary Hill. Can you say something about that? Because, again, that's another fundamental element is, is that Glasgow is always very directly connected to the sort of architectural, but also the community roots of the city. I learned so much from this group, Mary Hill Integration Network and the Joyous Choir. And I'd worked, started working with the community organisation probably in 2014, maybe 2013, on a different project, which I did with my friend Denise Uster. And we were just blown away with how much they wanted to support the project, but also where, you know, they really valued the idea that art practices could, you know, be really positive for different, you know, different people, different individuals, families. And the Joyous Choir, of which I'm very much an unofficial member because I cannot sing at all, you know, just their practice of coming together and supporting one another was incredibly inspiring. I mean, they're so interwoven into each other's lives and will support each other with lifts, with um, advice, you know, and generally just really check in. I mean, the WhatsApp group for the Joyous Choir is incredible and everyone is supporting one another. And, you know, quite a few of the people in the group are still struggling with figuring out their status or, or you know, kind of like basically having, the, you know, the leave to remain in, in the UK. And everyone rejoices when that comes through, there's no sense of competitiveness. But also, you know, when we started working together on this film, we also worked with different groups on the canal. And with no kind of hesitation, they agreed to let us use their canal boat. And it was a boat that this community organization had, you know, had built and working with a different canal trust. And they shared it so generously with Mary Hill and Mary Hill let me come and film. And there's just such a sense of open heartedness, but also a sense that we're really kind of deeply connected and believe in this work. You know, Rema Sharafi, who retired, the event we had, the final event for GI was actually like a festival and it also became her leaving do. And I mean, we were all just in bits, just in absolute bits, thinking of everything she's done, which is really dedicating her advocacy to supporting people with, you know, very practical you know, issues related to status and housing and funding and just, you know, those kind of very difficult, complicated things, but also in providing outlets for creativity. And has been an incredible collaborator with me now on a number of projects. And I'm very grateful to Rema, but also to all the folks from the Joyous Choir and and all the people who stepped in to, to make that work at GI possible. Uh, the work's called Business as Usual, Hostile Environment. And in many ways, it's actually a really difficult film because it does reflect on the hostile environment, the appalling events which are still continuing. They weren't, they're not isolated, as you said earlier, in, in a particular moment where, it, where this scandal was exposed. They continue right up to now. But with that joyous choir, you were able to bookend it with messages of hope. And I wondered about that narrative in the way of the work. And this, to a certain extent, yes, it's, a, it's actually quite a traumatic film, but you wanted to have a kind of bookending of, of positive messages, ultimately. You know, when I decided to close and end with the choir, it was as much wanting to foreground their research as being the kind of linchpin. 
to how I understand how the hostile environment can function, but also to the other ways of knowing how to be in the world, which are related to my thoughts on radical softness. And I did really want us to find a resting point, but also that invitation to delving deeper into what is beneath the surface in these waterways, because the ocean, you know, the canals, the rivers, all waterways, tributaries, this is very interesting to me as like a kind of signifier of migration, of empire, of imperialist um, expansion, but also what are these stories that are buried beneath the water? You know, what is really hidden there? You know, you can have a great day out just on the canal, but what is the histories that are beneath the surface? And, you know, because I do think of the work very much as an invitation, and I am a bit of a storyteller in trying to kind of like share these ideas, you know, the Mary Hill Integration Choir became this way to, to really take note of who is here with us and that these women are a huge part of the story and they're gracious enough to actually come and share their joy with us and show these other ways of being. But at the end, where I have, you know, this reminder that we need to thank the NHS, thank the, you know, key workers, thank farmers, thank all the people who've been keeping plodding on and keeping this country afloat, it's a good kind of like reminder that these are acts of hope that we're trying to really persevere with and it's not invisible labor. It can't be seen as invisible anymore. We can't forget, we can't be, you know, just choose to hold on to amnesia. There are other ways of being in the world that I think are much more critical and, you know, they're built on, on parity and an understanding of our own positionality. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? This is a very personal one, but I will share. Thank you. I was in Johannesburg with Frida, my good friend and collaborator, and she'd been working at the Apartheid Museum. And, you know, growing up a child of the 80s and living in Barbados, we would, we would see stories of apartheid on the news you know, often, and my parents were, you know, when they lived in the UK in the 70s, were, you know, very concerned with the student movement there, and obviously trying to kind of, you know, protest against apartheid. And as you enter the apartheid museum, it's a big atrium, and there are all of these nooses hanging from the ceiling. And it is such a startling and really striking, but also terrifying entry point into that into the it's a really incredible museum where they do tell the story of how apartheid manifested but also you know like what that meant in very real terms of people who were leaders and fighting it but when I stood underneath those nooses you know and I really thought you know my my father is white my mother is black I suddenly realized as a person of dual heritage I wouldn't be able to exist here. I wouldn't be able to exist here. That if my father was in here, you know, if I'd lived in South Africa at that time, my presence would be illegal and my parents would have been arrested. And that really shook me. That really, really, really shook me to think of in a very real way about how my existence, you know, would have been completely compromised and is almost impossible to dream of. And obviously people did come into the world who were of dual heritage, but that impossibility of my family structure that, you know, I know as loving um, and where, you know, everyone is present, it was impossible to imagine that standing in that atrium. And it really, I, I mean, it, it was terrifying. You were obviously there making work at the time, right? I so, was. and I wondered what did the next day in the studio entail? How, could you could you process it in a way that meant translating it into a way of making art, or did it take a while for that process to develop? I started making these bronze tongues, I think, not long afterwards. Because you know, one of my earliest memories, besides these conversations with my parents watching apartheid on the news, I mean, which you know, if I'm honest with you, it really was like watching a horror film you know, as a child, you know, was watching Cry Freedom, that film with Denzel Washington and Kevin Kline. So we watched that as well, you know, around that time. And I think I went back to the studio, watched Cry Freedom, was absolutely back in that space. And, you know, even though I grew up in the Caribbean, I think that understanding of race and difference 
and anti-blackness was formed very early with me because of these very open conversations I had with my, I was able to have with my parents. So going back to the studio and really understanding, this is really the totality of anti-blackness when, you know, families cannot exist. Families cannot exist in this world. That was frightening, but it also made me think about the dislocation of my own identity as a, as a Caribbean woman and, you know, having no real understanding of where my ancestors would have come from, where my enslaved ancestors would have come from. And so I found myself thinking a lot about language and I began making these images, but also sculptures of tongues, which are still something that I work with, you know, in my sculptural works. So I had these casts of my tongues made um, and then they were made into bronzes. And then I ended up, you know, having um, a screw put in them so they could go onto the wall and in different postures. And that was what I ended up doing afterwards, as well as doing these collages, more collages. But those were the kind of, I think those were a very strong reaction. Let's talk about literature. Which writers or poets do you return to? Kamal Brathwaite is, I think, one of my favourite poets. I and, and also writers, because he's a really amazing cultural theorist as well. And, you know, he's from Barbados. I was very lucky that my, my mum and dad knew him very well. He unfortunately passed away February last year. But I was able to be at his funeral. And I think I grew up always with his his writing in my house. And I think he, the way in which he describes the world, but also how he makes his poetry so visual has just always really sat with me. It's so striking. And also there's a real tenderness in terms of how he reflects upon, you know, these ideas of like race, but also the Caribbean as being a place where you know, the water is such a big part of how we understand ourselves and, you know, these, these modes of departure, but also in the intertidal zone and what collects there, what histories collect there. And, you know, building on that, I think John Brand and Christina Sharp have also been hugely influential in my kind of like more recent research. But Kamal Brathwaite has always been there, always been there, even though at times I think when I first started reading, I found it just completely impenetrable. It took time and then he's really now become such a touchstone for um, the exhibition at Jupiter Artland. I um, made an installation in their Dukat where his, um, his widow Beverly kindly granted permission to use an extract of him reading from his Kumina poem, which was after the loss of his stepson who was murdered in Jamaica. And we created an installation really dedicated to those who, who've lost their lives because of racial infrastructure. And his voice is so incredible as he reads this poem. It's, I think, the most powerful thing I've ever listened to. That's so wonderful. Um, you mentioned Christina Sharp there, and I know that Christina Sharp was a big influence behind Between a Whisper and a Cry, which is a, which is a really important film in your career, isn't it? Yeah, no, Christina Sharp, I was lucky enough to meet her when she came to Glasgow. And I'd been reading her prior to that. And there's such an interesting way in terms of how she she frames this idea of wake work, of being a way to come together, to think about the totality of anti-blackness as being the weather and this idea of the weather, but also what histories are, you know, these how these racial infrastructures that mean that black death is so prevalent she manages to write about it in the most intimate way where she interweaves her own personal narratives, her own family stories against, you know, work by artists, but also against, you know, these instances of loss that more of us know about. So the shooting of Trayvon Martin to, you know, a nephew of hers that lost his life in a really tragic way. But she becomes, I think, it's almost like a reader when I read her work, it becomes this reader, it becomes almost like a collection of strategies for us to think about, I guess, the catastrophe, you know, the afterlife of slavery, 
but also that there are ways through mutual care and attending to the dead, which can allow us to imagine ways to go forward. And I'm really interested in like how we can move forward because as much as my work I think is really deeply engaged in thinking about histories that create these racial infrastructures that you know embolden the catastrophe of black death, how are we going to persist and move through this with greater accountability for everyone, not just black people, not just people of color, but white people as well. How can we move forward together and think about our own positions in relationship to this, to this, the times we're living in? I wanted to also talk about Edwidge Dandicat because in an online residency that you did with CCA Dairy Londonderry recently, you quoted Edwidge Dandicat. And it's really interesting because Ellen Gallagher, whose work formally is very different to yours in all sorts of ways, but she also... Oh, but I love Ellen Gallagher. Uh, She's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. So she, she, on this podcast, she talked about Edwidge Dandicat and talked particularly about the Dewbreaker. And I want, it's really interesting to see you also quoting, because of course, some of the territory of yours and, and Ellen Gallagher's work is, is similar in terms of, as you were talking about, we talked about oceans, water, the history of slavery, etc. I love Ellen Gallagher's work, actually. You know, that's, I really need to listen to that. <laughs> well, it was a book of Edward Dandicats in particular that I found myself really, you know, kind of like rereading particular chapters of hers. And it's, it's this idea of creating dangerously and with this understanding that the times we're living in are inherently dangerous. And I think, you know, in the UK, how this is presented as the hostile environment is unavoidable. You know, and I I found myself talking with a friend about this last week, really thinking about the creative act as inherently dangerous anyway. And, you know, in the UK, I think we really take for granted our liberty. I do think we take it very much for granted. And I wonder, well, for how long are we going to take it for granted when we have, you know, these different bills being put in place to stop us from protesting? And how Edward Danticat kind of like defines, you know, her relationship to her reader and her as a writer, as almost being a pact and understanding that there is danger in making the work, but there's also danger in reading the work and absorbing or performing the work. And I'm really interested in that because, you know, my relationship with my audience is very intimate. It's very, very intimate. And I think I try and trust the audience a lot and I I do make myself vulnerable, but I'm also aware that they're also quite vulnerable. And I think as, I guess I want to say brave, as I try to be when I make my work, I do wonder about the fugitivity that may become an issue, you know, as conversations may be shut down. And I think Danticat, how she, you know, she still persists, and I've been using that word so much, but it feels like really important to kind of say that, you know, that you're persisting in being hopeful, in making work, in being creative is really key because you know you make it for your audience it is an act of love in a way to do that for them as much as an act of trust or you know you're entrusting your work with them what music or other audio do you listen to while you're working i listen to a lot of old school dance hall i have to admit which i love you know try and still keep up to date with what's happening at home um but i also i'm really in love with jesse norman I just love her voice and I also grew up listening to her and I have found myself listening to quite a lot of her and just really loving those deep spiritual kind of gospels that she sings as well as as her opera. But I, I think it's important for me to kind of get moving with a good dance party first thing, for sure. <laughs> so Patra, I love Patra. I absolutely love Patra. I'll be listening to her first thing when I'm getting out of bed and kind of like starting the day, but also when I'm in the studio. I wanted to talk a bit about dance because in when you were in Barbados doing a residency at one point, you made works which referenced fake posters. And it seems to me that this is quite an interesting formative moment in your career in terms of like formulating your language and everything else. Can you tell me a bit about that? Because obviously they are very crucial in this sort of environment oh, yeah. of Barbados. Definitely. So these FET posters are images which you see everywhere. You'll see them on lampposts, you'll see them on walls, you'll see them on fences, and they're very informal parties. And they have quite a particular format. So for instance, you know, if I was having a party, so I was having a party, and you know, Ben, you decided to host that party with me, 
we would go to a graphic studio and we would have some photos taken and then we would give it to the designer and the designer would put all of these really aspirational symbols on it. So like, you know, big motorbikes, limos, um, you know, pit bulls, all sorts of different things. And then there'd be a variety of different um, paraphernalia around it and, you know, maybe a different landscape, completely different landscape. But, you know, when I was doing the residency at Fresh Milk with Annalee Davis, and it's the first time I'd been home for actually quite a long time, um, for a long period of time, because I think I was home for about four months doing the residency. And I found myself really thinking so much about gender presentation and about queerness and also about how fixed gender presentation is in the Caribbean and wanting to create this alternative. And so in my FET posters, I end up um, doing drag um, and in quite a lot of them, which I really, I really, really enjoyed. But also it was a really interesting way to also kind of like think of the duality of like my own kind of like sexuality and how this is performed and how this is presented and also speak about these kind of like vernacular I guess like street life and you know what we see what becomes a landscape painting and in some ways I think I'm a bit of a failed landscape painter but I do consider these FET posters almost like landscape paintings you know and I went out and I did end up papering them in different spots in Barbados you know in town and country and it was a really interesting way for me to also kind of like revisit these cultures of like I guess like, you know, how we were saying earlier, like music cultures and like the very strict performance styles that are in place, even though, you know, I love to think that the dance floor is democratic. There's still strict behaviors that are, you know, adhered to on the dance floor and in, and in, in dance hall very much. But I'm, I'm curious about what movements will, you know, will take. Maybe we'll have someone at the NAS who will come and shake things up, which I would love. I would absolutely love that. That would be fantastic. But um, yeah, no, I really, I'm very interested in that series as a landscape series. I wanted to talk a bit more about music. In the Glasgow International Film, there is a sequence in which you include Abby Lincoln singing from that trilogy of work. So it's called, it's called Prayer, Protest, Peace. And it's, well, it's, it's still, I mean, if, 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 no, if you haven't encountered that, listeners, do go online and look. It's incredible. It, it's extraordinary. Tell us about Abby Lincoln and it's Max Roach as well, you know. Max Roach as well, who's also Barbadian, which I always like to claim him as. Um, you know, it, actually, that piece was introduced to me by my friend um, Intone, who's this DJ in Cape Town. And when I first came across it and we were listening to it, the intensity of her voice, but also there's this sense of ultimate control in terms of like how she manages to declaim or to sing this piece or to cry and moan and lament. And I'd been thinking so for when I was making Between a Whisper and a Cry, I found myself thinking a lot about musical traditions in Scotland that are linked to jazz and call and response, but also the lament. And that idea of the lament and keening as a way of really dealing with grief as a kind of like very, you know, a sonic way of literally sitting with grief, but also where Abby Lincoln brings this other layer to it, where there's also rage and deep critique of these systems, of the situation of apartheid in Johannesburg, of what was going on in the US at the time. It was just so moving to me, but also incredibly powerful. And when I edit my work, I often think about how I want, you know, especially the female figures to almost appear godlike. I want them to have the sense of being larger than life, of being really, really impressive. And you cannot avoid them. You just cannot avoid them. And I wanted Abby Lincoln to have that, you know, I kind of like reversed, in, you know, her image. So it's this mirror image. And she's this all-knowing, all-seeing goddess. And remind us how small and vulnerable we all are, actually. I think she has this wonderful way of doing that in her voice. I want to talk more about movement and music in your work because it's really interesting how different the kind of modes are. There's one sequence in Business as Usual where there's a tap dance to the music of Project Yellow. There's another sequence which is much more 
um, the music is much more mournful, for instance, uh, and and this is in this is in reset where where the dancer is dancing to a non rhythmic essentially piece of music. So tell me about those different modes of music and the way that in a way that, that how that influences the kind of language of the visuals. I think a lot about mechanics, like mechanical sounds. You know, in a very early memory of mine is, I think we were staying at a friend of my mom's and they did like an early Airbnb thing and these British tourists were staying there and they had a daughter and they took me and my sister out to the sugar factory where you could do this tour. And it was absolutely terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. This is like literally maybe early 90s and there's no health and safety. And it was so loud. It was deafening, absolutely deafening. And the kind of like machinery of capitalism, but also this kind of like really kind of like sometimes the squeals, you know, I'm really interested like in layering these squeals and also kind of like almost connecting them sometimes with nature. So I think that, you know, when I'm making these sonic landscapes, or kind of like bringing these things together more so in the case of like the business as usual film, I wanted there to be the sense of, you know, I spoke earlier about this idea of like finding a resting point where we can kind of like be watching something, but then something will happen and it'll kind of be a bit of a slap in the face and then you have to wake up. And for me, that's quite important because I'm always feel a bit guilty when my films get to 30 minutes, if I'm honest with you. I'm always like, my gosh, it's a long time for the audience. But I do want there to be that kind of like rhythm of like allowing people to settle in with the work, allowing people to become familiar with the textures that I make films with, which are kind of a range of different formats from HD to mobile phone to 4K. You know, there are a range of different textures in the work. But I do want to kind of keep people a bit on their toes. And with Reset, I was very lucky to collaborate with two gorgeous composers and editors, Eve B. Golden, who's also an incredible poet and artist, and Richie Carey, who's also a wonderful artist and composer and just both incredible human beings. And, you know, we spoke for a long time about the kind of sounds we wanted to be in the work. And and it was very much, you know, thinking quite a lot about Eve's and my relationship. And we met in Senegal, actually, which, you know, is in Francophone Africa. And that beautiful song that is in it is almost like this is about Eve and I and us missing each other because she was in LA, you know, during the making of the film. And so it's very personal. I mean, these are very small things that no one would know, but it is a bit like we are communicating with each other in these little ways that no one will necessarily understand. But, you know, she, she also contributed a piece for Between a Whisper and a Cry in the August chapter. And you know, that's the best thing when you've worked with a, you know, a friend, a, a collaborator a few times, they tend to know, they can read your mind before you've even got the thoughts out there. So I'm very lucky to work with both of them on, you know, these two films, Reset and Between a Whisper and a Cry. But I, you know, that kind of shift between the mechanical or something that is more grating and then something that suggests a kind of like more sensual or rhythmic layering is something you know which I've, I find it's almost like my collages because I do like to kind of layer sounds in, in a similar way and you know even there's a little section of um, business as usual where you know Francis Doso who's another wonderful artist I work with you know on the sound where you know he made this beautiful piano um, refrain but then has this just a buzz over it and I think, you know, the collaging in the sound as well as in the visuals, whether it's in my collages or on the screen, are always about thinking about those rupturing, about what's what's trying to get through, what's trying to break its way through. And, you know, I actually think that residency I did at Fresh Milk with the FET posters, those were very much those first experiments into collage in a more considered way. You know, so I think my way of making and thinking really changed after that. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? Endless Column by Brancusi. I absolutely love Brancusi's work so much. I love totems. 
I really, really love totems. I find that work so mystical and heavenly and also just so pleasurable. It's a deeply pleasurable piece of work. And I remember when I went to go see his work, I think it's at, is it the Pompidou Center? Mm -hmm. Where he had that kind of, where the studio is. Yeah. And I just, I spent like hours in there just looking and, you know, thinking about how he just, you know, really changed how the kind of like form just, and like just, and all those gorgeous materials. I just love it. And I, I would love to have that. I'd love to have a garden big enough for that piece. <laughs> I think one of the things about Bancusi is obviously a, a great modernist artist, but whose work is inherently rooted in the place from which he emerged. And that's something which is always so powerful. I mean, that's obviously a key to your work, too. I think so, you know, and I, I'm really interested. Sometimes I think, gosh, you know, I, I identify so strongly as being Barbadian or being Caribbean, but also, you know, making this choice to live in Scotland. And in some ways... I kind of, I've at times felt, I think, quite uncomfortable with, you know, really like situating myself so firmly in this kind of like duality of kind of identities. But I also think, you know, the older I get, you know, there's always this distinction being made about, you know, being from one or the other, especially in the UK, where I'm asked regularly where I come from. And when I say, well, I've lived in Glasgow all my adult life. You know, people are like, yeah, but where do you really come from? And that's a really frustrating question to be asked. And I think it's now become a point of, you know, me recognizing my choice, but also the fact that I've made this choice. This is an act of choice to live in Scotland. It's also an act of choice to really reflect on the fact that Scotland is a creolized space which I don't think it's ever really spoken of. And therefore, my Caribbean identity should be very welcome here and be completely anticipated and expected because it is creolized. You know, Scotland would not be the place it is today without the Caribbean. And last question. What's art for? Manifesting hope. Absolutely manifesting hope. I remember when the election results came out the year before last and everyone was quite depressed, to be honest with you. <laughs> But we were talking so much about, you know, what next, what next? And I, and I was like, you know what? It's time to be hopeful. You know, whatever your beliefs are, we need to kind of like remember that being creative, moving forward is a deeply hopeful act. And I really, I've found my experiences going to exhibitions and looking at artists like, you know, Louise Bourgeois or, you know, Frida Kahlo or, or any of the artists I've mentioned, you know, I could mention so many more. It fills me with hope because it fills me with excitement. It fills me with excitement to think, my goodness, this is what's out there. This is what people are doing. I want to be part of this. I want to contribute to this conversation. And I, and I hope that, you know, my work can start to do that for people as well, because you know, if we want change to happen, the only way that's going to happen is if people talk to each other. And if they're talking about art, you know, and potentially art that is trying its hardest to say something, whatever that may be, that is hopeful. And that is a way of manifesting hope. Indeed it is. Alberta, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. It's been great. Alberta Whittle's Reset is on display at Jupiter Artland near Edinburgh until the 31st of October and is part of the Edinburgh Art Festival. You can watch Business as Usual Hostile Environment at Glasgow Sculpture Studios website. That's at glasgowsculpturestudios.org slash screening dash programme. And that show that Alberta mentioned at Glasgow Women's Library is Life Support, Forms of Care in Art and Activism and that runs from the 14th of August until the 16th of October. She features in the artist Sonia Boyce's exhibition in the Castle of My Skin at Mima in Middlesbrough in the UK until the 10th of October and she's showing new work as part of the British Art Show 9. That's at Aberdeen Art Gallery also until the 10th of October then in Wolverhampton, Manchester and Plymouth in 2022. She's in part two of the Gothenburg Biennial in Sweden from the 4th of September to November 2021. She's included in Life Between Islands, Caribbean British Art 1950s to now at Tate Britain in London from the 1st of December this year until the 3rd of April. April 2022. 
She also features in Sex Ecologies, a show at the Kunsthal Trondheim in Norway from the 9th of December until the 6th of March 2022. And last, but very much not least, Alberta is representing Scotland at the 59th Venice Biennale in 2022. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our other podcasts, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues, which is back in September. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper Podcast are Julia Mahouska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentel, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalla. Huge thanks to Alberta Whittle. Join us next week for A Brush With, a very special guest. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Artica. Go to articabooks.com to discover books transformed into authentic works of art.